This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Hello and a very warm welcome to this week's Weekend Woman's Hour with me, Anita Rani. Our best selection of things we've spoken about throughout the week, gathered together just for you. Coming up this afternoon... Our women are not just helping with the men in the kitchens, they're on our picket lines fighting... What role did women play in the miners' strike 40 years ago and how did it change things for women? We'll find out. Plus, the first female chief constable for Avon and Somerset Police who invited cameras into her counter-corruption unit. And... When I sort of got in a boat for the very first time, the, the most powerful moment for me was really pushing off from that side, being out on the water and not being in my wheelchair. And that for me was a really powerful moment in my life of just being free from the disability for the very first time since I had it. Hear the inspiring story of Paralympic Team GB rower Lauren Rowles, including why cutting her hair short was such a pivotal moment in her career. All that to come and more. So grab yourself a drink and settle in. Now, she's been described as the queen of morning TV, and yesterday I got to interview her. Lorraine Kelly joined TVAM as their Scottish correspondent in 1984, and save for a brief maternity leave 30 years ago, has barely left the schedule since, for the last 14 as host of ITV's Lorraine. Now, after a lifetime of wanting to, she's written her first novel, The Island Swimmer, a story of family secrets, island communities and overcoming fear. I started by asking her how she felt 40 years in. Do you know, it's strange if you'd said to me, you know, way back when I first joined, because I joined TVAM as Scottish correspondent, the best job in the world and I loved it. And I never had any sort of thoughts about, you know, coming south and sitting on a pink sofa. It really wasn't, it just was never, I never thought about it at all. And only it got asked to do some relief for holidays after Lockerbie and then I only brought enough knickers for a week <laughs> and then sort of like you know 40 years later here I am so yeah it's it's been amazing though I love it I'm so lucky to be doing a job that I love with a great team and every day is different it's like this every day is different you yes. talk to so many different people and it's been incredible but none more different than what you're going through right now because after yes. a broadcasting <laughs> career of 40 years you've written a book a novel what, what, or something you've always wanted to do always I mean I was really lucky um, you you know, we, we lived in the East End of Glasgow and my mum and dad might not have had very much money, but they always made sure books were very much a part of our life. The library, to be honest. We went to the library in Bridgeton in Glasgow and I virtually lived there. I mean, it was the world, wasn't it? You walked in the doors and there was the world was yeah. yours. And my mum taught me to uh, read and write before I went to primary school. So um, I was a bit of a swart <laughs> in that sense. But always, always had books, always reading, you know, always talking about books. So it was very much sort of ingrained in me. But I never thought I would get the opportunity to do it or indeed the time. And I just basically was a hermit. Yes. And well, I didn't go out. Well, well, let's talk about the book before we talk about the process. Yes. Um, the story, because actually writing, a, wanting to write a book is one thing, but actually thinking of know. knowing what you want to write sure. about. Was the story always there? Tell, tell us a bit about it. Kind of. It's always going to be set in Orkney because I love Orkney. Why and Orkney? Um, I, I went there as a reporter back in uh, 84 and I go back every single year because I just love it. There are some places that just, they pull you back. You know that way you go somewhere and you think, oh, I'd quite like to go back there one day. 
it's, it's like I need to go back and I still haven't seen everything that's going on so Orkney is very much a character almost Ab- in the story yeah. but it's really about a young girl who you find out why she has to leave Orkney it's quite traumatic um, and very difficult and very deep and she has to leave she tries to rebuild her life in London but she doesn't feel she's worth anything you know she's got that sense of I don't deserve happiness I don't deserve a good relationship um, and then she has to go back to Orkney 20 years later when her father gets really ill and it's trying to rebuild bridges. It's trying to come to terms with tragedy, misunderstandings. There's a very toxic relationship with her sister. Um, and at the end of the book, some things are resolved, but not everything. It's not tied up in a little bow. Um, some of these relationships never get resolved, um, which is why I'm not done with these characters. I was so sad to say bye-bye to them, Anita. Yeah, they, because so they, live, sad. they live in your head. They do, and they're real. You know, I can see them. I can absolutely see them. And it's so interesting because a lot of writers have said to me, Marion Keyes in particular, mm. has said to me, you don't know where your characters are going to take you. Yes. And I used to say, how can that possibly be? You're writing it, but I get it. I understand it now. I got very excited when I saw that Marion Keyes had commented on the book because I thought, oh my God, Marion Keyes. No. I mean, that's the ultimate that stamp of approval. The, that's it, really. I mean, that's it now. That's just wonderful. But so far, I mean, it's only been out for a couple of days officially, um, but so far the reviews have been so lovely. And that's all, I just want people to to dive into it and to enjoy the, you know, to to to, like when I read a Maeve Binchy book, yeah. I'm right there in the world that she's created. And your characters um, will draw people in and you get to feel a sense of them straight away. And it's a really diverse cast as well. Very much so. Very, very much so. And I think the, the device of uh, the fact that there is a wild water swimming group or is Freya, who's my my favourite. Freya is a wise woman. She's in her late 70s and she's kind of at the heart of the story in she's many tra- ways. trans woman. Everybody, yes, but it's kind of like... You know, when she's 15, she is Freya. She was Magnus, a wee boy, uh, living in a a small island. Um, And everybody just accepts, oh, there's Magnus, it's fine. You know, that's what he is. And then he becomes Freya. And some people get it a wee bit wrong. But what I really wanted to do was to show that we're all different but essentially we're all the same and Freya is just a woman um, she is a wonderful she can be a bit interfering at times sometimes she takes it too far but a lot of her is based on my grandmother my grandmother was one of these um, oh she was an incredible what woman. was her name? Uh, Margaret, she was okay. called Peggy and she used to, like she always said to me from I was tiny, she would say don't save anything till best so my grandmother, she would festoon herself in scarves yes. and massive, you know, colourful jewellery, she'd spray herself with tweed perfume. Every time I smell tweed perfume I'm back with my gran. But she would do that and he said to take the bins out. I mean she just was somebody who said seize the day and that thing of how often... I love that she was such a Scot that she had to spray herself in tweed. Oh yeah, exactly. She sprayed herself with the perfume. But she was amazing and, and I loved that attitude mm. of you know, don't don't keep things for a bit. We all do it, don't we? We get a really beautiful dress and we think, oh well I can't wear that or those shoes and yeah. we sit there in the cupboard gathering dust. It's crazy. No, I made a crazy. change. I've decided that it's ne- when, if not now, when? Exactly. Just exactly. Don't save exactly anything's right. best. But the, 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 how many people have asked you specifically about talking about Freya and the surprise that you've put a trans character in there? Yeah, because I wanted people, because in the book, you get to know her first and then you get her background a little bit. Yeah. I don't go into it in huge, great detail because, you know, she's just Freya. And she even says herself, you know, I just want to be accepted for who I am. That's all. And I think that that was the message that I really wanted to get across mm. was the fact that, yeah, we're, we're, all, we're all just trying to go on with our lives. And everybody's different in that sense. But everybody's the same. We've got enough 
awful lot more in common when we actually start talking to each other um, than we have that separates us. And and she is very much part of the, the whole community, all of the stories. I didn't really realise that at the time, but when I look at it now, all of the stories go back to Freya. She's connected to every single person. She is the person, like she she's the one who, who has the selkies, they're called, the, the swimming group. They're called, a selkie is like a mythical creature, half woman, half seal. Mm. And Evie is very frightened of the water. You find out why mm. and you can understand why. Um, and it's all about, and it's all about as well, women supporting other women and holding them up, whether they're holding them up physically in the water or just holding us all up emotionally. It's it's about that too. Uh, yeah, and as you say, swimming, cold water swimming features in the book and it's something that you do yourself? Well, yes. On your Instagram? I, honestly, very foolishly, Anita, the first thing, the where, first time I ever did, did it, Antarctica. I do not recommend this. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think this was quite silly. Um, but I did go in and because we, we were doing this fantastic trip to Antarctica where we're following in the footsteps of Ernest Shackleton, who's my absolute hero beyond, you know, I just love him. So that for me was like, I was like a child, I was like a toddler. And when they stopped at Deception Island, they said, look, if you want to, you can go in. And I put my swimming costume on ready, but I took all my clothes off, you know, really fast and left them on the beach and ran in. I kept my hat on and my gloves, ran in, very quickly ran out again. Yeah. And I could actually see, I couldn't feel anything at all, so I couldn't get my clothes back on because they were all inside out. And I was trying... <laughs> I couldn't feel anything. So I had to sort of go back to the wee boat and I could see the ice forming on the hairs of my arms. Oh, no. But do you know what? I yeah. have never felt more alive. Um, I want to ask you about changing. I mean, I know you haven't changed your career. You've just added another string to your bow because you've got so much time, obviously. Oh, yeah, loads. <laughs> How did you find the time to do this? I, I, like I said, I was quite selfish and my husband was great because you can't do things like this on your own. Nobody can do anything on your own. You can't do this on your own. You know, you obviously have a great team round about you, but my husband picked up a lot of the slack. And when I was on it, when I was writing, I was really, really writing because for me, it's a full-time job writing a novel. That's why I waited for so long. But I sort of feel at this stage, you know, I'm going, there's a lot of big milestones this year. I'm going to be 65. My daughter's going to be 30, 40 years in, in breakfast mm. telly. It just felt like the right time. And also, and I'm sure you're the same, you sort of, it's not based, the book isn't, the characters aren't based on anyone in particular. There's a little bit of my grandmother and Freya, but it's about the fact that you've been talking to people for so long. People have trusted you with their stories yeah. and you can pick up things and just by listening, you know, you can pick up lots of different traits of people and you can put it in the story. And there's a lot of fun in there as well. There's mm. a lot of laughs and, you know, and, and a really good sense of humour too. So, and I wanted to get the light in the shade too. Um, I think you said a word there, trust. And my next question was going to be, how have you managed to stay at the top for 40 years? But I think just sitting here, and you have interviewed me, so it's such a brilliant <laughs> privilege in my life to be able to be interviewing Lorraine <laughs> Kelly. I think we trust you. I hope so. I hope so. And that really is down to just being there every day. You know, it's, it's about that. Um, and, and also, I do try, I always think, and I always say to anyone who, who says, you know, I'd love to do this job or I would like to yeah. be a journalist or whatever, you really have got to do your homework. That's first of all. You've, obviously, you've got to do that. Um, but you've got to listen. And it's mm. never about you. And give people the opportunity to talk. I mean, sometimes that's quite hard because I've only got a certain amount of time to talk to someone. Um, but it's really important that you do the work. That's yeah. all I would say, do the work. That's why when I was doing the book, I actually enjoyed the editing process because I do that every day. It's like you, I get tons and tons of information about yeah. a guest and then you've got to distill it into, and in your head, have two or three bullet points 
and then just go where the conversation takes you. But now that you're 40 years in, if when you sit down, I don't know if you have, you probably have, and <laughs> reflected. Yeah. Because, you know, you've your parents, you know, you come from a very working class background sure. in Glasgow, and here you are, I the know. queen of daytime TV. Well, the Dowager Duchess. 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's still a great title. <laughs> Uh, 40 years in. I know, it's astonishing, isn't it? Well, how, where, where did that come from? Where did your confidence come from? Oh, I don't even know if I've got confidence. I've still got a wee bit of that working class cringe where you think, you know, somebody, if you're, if you're somewhere posh, have you? somebody's going to tap you on the shoulder and say, I'm terribly sorry you'll have to leave. Um, I don't know, I think, I think from my family, I mean, I think from my mother, I'm so glad that my mum likes the book and because my mum will tell me in the morning, she'll say, what? What was that? You know, like, what were you wearing? Or what was your hair like? Or why, more to the point, she'll say, why did you not ask this question? <laughs> She's really good and very, you know, and, and I don't, I've never kind of, I don't know what a celebrity lifestyle is. I need to, I've got no idea what it is. Well, you were on Graham Norton yesterday. Well, that was, come on, oh, that is pretty celebrity. Can you tell us about that? I was the only that? person on that sofa that I had no idea, you know, who didn't know who I was. <laughs> I mean, the, I, you know, I had no idea who I was. It was just magical and funny. Now, I don't think I could have done that even 10 years ago. Honestly, you know, Why? beside what? Olivia Coleman and Jodie Foster, I mean, come on. It's still that thing of you can't quite believe you're there. I mean, I do remember interviewing Buzz Aldrin, the second man in the moon, and that yes. was for me the ultimate interview. I mean, it was a terrible interview because I was fangirling all over him, and you probably thought I was. More than George on. Clooney, you were fangirling. I, I, m- more, much more than George Clooney. And even now, I look up at the moon because my dad bought yeah. me a telescope when I was five, and we watched the moon landings together. And I look at the moon and think, I've actually spoken to a person whose feet, whose body, who was on the moon. How amazing is that? And I spoke to the person that interviewed the person whose feet were on the moon. How about that? That was me speaking to Lorraine Kelly yesterday and her book, The Island Swimmer, is out now. Now, 40 years ago next month, most of the coal miners in the UK went on strike over pit closures and proposed redundancies. The strike lasted a year and was one of the most divisive conflicts of a generation. But what part did women play? Here's a BBC News report from May 1984. If there was an award for the most kissed man in Barnsley today, there's no doubt about the winner. The women gave Arthur Scargill the pop star treatment, queuing up for him to sign their T-shirts. Mrs Scargill was there to see things didn't get out of hand, however. She's led the campaign to stop local traders withdrawing credit from strikers' families. Some wives with young families are managing on £25 a week, but they say the lost housekeeping and cancelled holidays only make them more determined. Mining's a male monopoly, and by tradition, women have known who accepted their place. But that, said Mr Scargill, is over. Our women are not just helping with the men in the kitchens, they're on our picket lines fighting... The voices you heard there were BBC correspondent Michael Cole and Arthur Scargill, the president of the National Union of Mine Workers. I like the detail that Mrs Scargill was on hand just in case things got out of control. And tomorrow, BBC Two is broadcasting Miners' Strike, a frontline story which features personal testimony from 15 men and women, including Lisa McKenzie. She joined Nula alongside Heather Wood and they told her about their memories of that year, starting with Lisa. Yeah, it was um, 9th of March, 1984. Um, I was in bed uh, and I could hear a load of voices downstairs, which was very unusual because my dad was on days, which meant he leaves at four o'clock in the morning and comes back at two in the afternoon. So I thought, what's what's going on? Is it something to do with my birthday? <laughs> <laughs> I love the way kids think, right? Yeah. It must be to do with yeah. me. Well, you say kids, but 
I literally changed from that day from a kid to an adult. You know, that was one of the things about the strike. That year I went to work and my wages were important to the family. So I wasn't a kid really for very long. So, yeah, I went downstairs and my mum said, we're on strike and that's it. Immediately she got on, you know, sprung into action. She was cancelling the butcher, cancelling the milk. She knew, she knew. immediately money is yes. going to be tight. Yeah. She this knew is going, going to be, change everything. She knew it was going to be a long time as well. My mum was a trade unionist. Um, she uh, shop steward for her trade union, which was the knitwear, footwear and apparel union. Um, she'd been organising women and trade unions for many, many years and she immediately knew what to happen, what was going to happen. So literally the day my dad came home and wouldn't cross the picket line, uh, we started setting up Ashfield Women Against Pitch closures in our house um, with other women and I didn't go back to school again. <laughs> that was it. That was like That's a full-time it. job. Yeah, well, I, I went, you were going out. Well, I went, to work, I went to school the next day and I'd got Colnock doll stickers on me and uh, the score was not happy and um, sent me home. There's also a lot of police in the area that were starting to harass us uh, for many different reasons, harassing me because I'd got the coal not doll stickers on, but also harassing some of my school friends, trying to get them in the back of the van. And so my mum just went, you know what, you're not going back. So I didn't go back. <laughs> so that begins to, though, illustrate this division that there was from day one uh, between some in authority and others that were going out on strike. I want to bring in Heather. Now, you were older than Lisa at the time. You were 32. You had young children. What do you remember from those early days? I think I had already learned a lot from the previous political activism that I was involved in. But it was in 83 when we first realised as a community what was going to happen and the way Thatcher was creating a society of uh, selfish individuals. Um, But at the beginning, it was excitement because I saw this as an opportunity to get women together, get women involved, um, get women to have opinions, have ideas, have views and that's the way I felt at the beginning. I knew it was going to last a year. Somebody asked me, um, how long will it be, Heather? How, 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 did, long do you think how did you know that? I don't, because I knew Margaret Thatcher was a stubborn woman, a stubborn woman, and she was determined to get back at us because of what the miners did to Heath in 74, because we'd beaten him. Margaret Thatcher was out to get the NUM and mining communities. So, I, And I knew she wouldn't give in easily. So I said, prepare, that's my forte, organise, prepare and prepare for the long run. And that was a year to me. Well, let's talk about that with both of you. Lisa, what do you remember of the organising, preparing? What were the women doing around you? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that was happening with with our women is nobody was short of opinions. No one was short of political nows. You know, people... When you live in mining communities, the politics are there every day, all the time, in your house, being talked about constantly. So it wasn't, you know, women has always sort of been political in their communities, whether it's about organising schools, whatever. So they just came together and started organising the way they did. But interestingly enough, there was other women in our area that had been organising from the 1926 general election. We had a woman called Ida Ackett, you know, on day two, 
she's round our house and she's saying, right, this is what we did in 1926. So therefore, you know, we were writing letters, um, you know, longhand, having to ask anyone, anybody for help and for support in order to get the soup kitchen set up. And people came through? Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, mum was... I mean, my mum, she didn't have a good education at school, um, but we were writing longhand and then I was sort of going through it. We sent uh, letters to Malupa Baby Food. They sent us a load of baby food. And then within a few months, we'd got the soup kitchen set up. Which was a huge part yeah. well, it trying that, to feed people. Yeah, then it was also a place where we came together, a place where you could sort of strategise and talk. And unlike other areas, Nottinghamshire, we because most of the men were working, we didn't have any access to the welfares or the or the spaces of the union because we were the minority. So yeah. we had to find other places. And you see that division in the documentary between maybe Yorkshire, for example, mm. and Nottinghamshire. Um, but back to you, Heather, what was the most important thing you think that women were doing at that time where you were? At first, it was the, um, the important thing to the women that I was involved with was to provide food, sustenance, um, which has usually been uh, the woman's accepted place in our societies. Um, but I have to say as well, um, women in our communities have always been the backbone because whenever there's been a problem, it's the women that have come out and sorted it. Um, but it's never been recognised really by the rest of society. In our communities, it's accepted. But outside, there's a, um, there's a myth that in mining communities they have these big strong men ruling these little women in crinoline dresses and that's just not the way it yeah. is. Uh, can I just... Sorry, please do, I see Lisa's nodding yeah, her head there. I, co- I completely agree with that. I mean, there's been a, a narrative since the strike and I saw it at the time when we, we started to get a lot of people coming into our communities. First time I'd ever met middle-class people when they came into our communities. And I remember the narrative was already starting then that women in mining communities had been oppressed. You know, they just carried children and cooked. And then all of a sudden, this narrative about, oh, they've come out of the kitchen. Because there was... (laughs) This line that I've heard and seen that women were liberated by yeah. the miners' strike. Yes, that that was a narrative. But anybody who's lived in a mining community or been in a mining family knows that's not... Women were not oppressed in those communities. We just lived in communities and di- people had different roles. Women's roles was basically to keep it going. Back to you, Heather. I can see you're nodding. <laughs> yes, I totally agree. But I do also... Uh, think there were a lot of women who didn't understand what their capabilities were. That was the problem. They had opinions, they had views that were stressed um, within the home, but they'd never gone out there and been political. And at first, it didn't happen around here. I don't know about any other area, but in our area, it didn't happen at first. Food on the table was the first thing. After that, it was, oh, right, we want to go on the picket lines. We want to go to rallies. We want to speak and we how was interviewed that, by television and it happened. But how was that received by the men in, in, in these pictures? And of course, it won't be this, I can't make one massive generalisation, but from what you saw, Lisa, for example. My dad was, was not, he, he wasn't happy 
about women going on the picket line at all. Why? Um, my my dad worked at Silver Hill Pit, and that's where Anne Scargill was arrested. And my dad had seen Anne Scargill get arrested. For a start, he didn't really think that they should have been there. He thought that they were sort of trying to, you know, bring the press and they were trying to cause trouble. And remember, this is in Nottinghamshire. Our lives were very different there. You know, we, we didn't have the whole community behind us. So when he saw Anne Scargill arrested, you know, he, and she was treated quite roughly, um, he didn't want women on the picket line, which was interesting because I used to go, but I'd go with all the young lads who, you know, might sort of, they're a couple of years older than me, and he never really thought about that. He never, he never said anything about that. It was more about his wife. He yeah. Going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and other women, and, I, and there was a lot of men that was quite against it, really. Did they come round? Well, I, I don't think it was quite, they came round. It's just that the women... I mean, my mum just went, we're going and that's it. And there was massive arguments. But, you know, I was just... I was going all the time anyway. Uh, I want to come to um, also what you think the repercussions of that time were. The documentary is so thought-provoking and you begin to see also, perhaps through women's eyes as well, how it affected not just them, but the men that they loved. Heather? In our communities, it changed. It was devastating, the the end of the strike, because we knew what was going to happen. We knew that our pit would close, even though at that time our pit was in the black. We were profit-making colliery, but... uh, They made it so that it was unprofitable. We were in the red. So we knew, so we were scared. We were all scared together. Men, women, children, everybody knew that the pit had made... You see, before we had the mine in our village, there wasn't a village. The mine brought the houses, brought the jobs, brought the families. So we knew what was going to happen. Devastation. And it really devastated us. I heard you say, Lisa, that the pit was life. Um, Yes, well, the coal, the coal was... The coal lived with us. We had coal in our houses. It lived with us. It was part of your family. You know, it was the very thing that kept us going. You know, my granddad had said to me when I was when I was two and three, you know, we are the most important people in the country. We keep the lights on. And I grew up really believing that being working class, coming from a mining community, was as bad. I was so lucky. I was thinking, God, aren't I lucky? Until the strike and then afterwards and we were no longer the people that kept the lights on we were old fashioned no good stuck in the past um the enemy within and do you think how long do you think that feeling or that yeah i suppose really the repercussions of that narrative lasted we're still here. This is it. This is this is what has happened to these communities. It's never changed. We still looked as backwards, no good, holding the country back. You could see it with the Brexit debates, actually, the way that they spoke, we were being spoken about. Lisa McKenzie and Heather Wood. And that documentary about the minor strike is on BBC Two tomorrow evening at nine. As always, we had several of you getting in touch with your own memories or experiences to do with this story. And this one particularly stood out from Chris. He says, I knew a couple of women in Sheffield who'd been very active in their pit villages strike and decided they preferred each other to their husbands. I don't think that would have happened without their activism in the strike. Great story. Still to come on the programme, the Chief Constable who invited cameras to film her officers and what came out of that and why one Team GB Paralympian says cutting off her hair made all the difference. 
And remember that you can enjoy Woman's Hour any hour of the day if you can't join us live at 10am during the week. Just head to BBC Sounds and listen anytime, anywhere, for free. Now, figures released earlier this week by the British Retail Consortium show that violence and abuse against shop workers rose to more than a 1,000 incidents a day last year, up by 50% in the year up to September 2023. We know, of course, that women still make up the majority of retail workers. So what's this like for them? Nula spoke to Michelle Whitehead, a workplace rep for Usdor, the shop workers' union, who told her she wasn't surprised by the figures. No, I'm not actually. In fact, I probably would have said it was more. What has your experience been? Um, Our experience at work is it's a daily occurrence and it's more than once. Um, They're coming in, they're abusing us, they're raiding our shelves, pushing us out the way, leaving, laughing at us. What else? There's loads of things I just... Sometimes I just get a bit too upset to talk about it because it's a daily occurrence, to be honest with you. You say raiding our shelves. So you're talking about shoplifting? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We, um, you can fill it up and then within five minutes, it seems like they know we've filled it up and they come in and they take the lot. And so do you think those incidences of violence and abuse are directly correlated with a rise in shoplifting? Oh, gosh, yeah, because you ask them to put it back and and they push you out the way. I mean, I'm, myself, I've had things thrown at me um, in the process of saying, could you please put the stuff back? Um, I've had items thrown at me, a, a basket thrown at me. It's, it's quite horrific. I was mentioning there that, that you were working for 20 years. So you've really got that whole trajectory of experience to look back on. Can you pinpoint where it changed? We've always had a bit of abuse, um, but not as much. And I think I think COVID changed a lot of it. I think a lot of people um, decided that they were frustrated with the way the world was. So and it was, we were one of the key workers. We were one of the main um, shops open. Mm-hmm. So I think they came in with their frustration, took it out on us. And I think it's a trend that's carried on. Because nothing was done back then. They were allowed to bawl and shout and throw things at us and get frustrated. And it's just carried on because nothing has been done about it. And your experience is something that's replicated by other members of the union? Oh, gosh, yeah, yeah. All of us in retail um, experience abuse, all of us. Um, but you talk about it in such a resigned way, maybe, you know, that, that, that that's part and parcel, that's part of my job. Unfortunately, I mean, us do do a campaign where they, abuse is not part of the job and they're, they're doing their best to lobby the government of the day to change the law. But it is, it is part of your job, unfortunately. You just get so used to being shouted at or summit thrown at you that it just becomes the norm, unfortunately. I can't imagine that um, level of stress on a daily basis. Have you thought about leaving? I do look at other jobs, but we have had people leave and it's the colleagues you leave behind because we do have conversations about colleagues we have left and they all have left because of the abuse, totally. I mean, we have been doing job interviews in my store recently and one of the applicants was actually in the shop while another member of staff was being abused and she retracted. She said there is no way 
she could be able to tolerate that that we have to put up with. She just happened to be in that store. That Well, it happens all the time, to be honest with you. So the likelihood of most people that come in our store seeing something, they've all seen it. Mm. Um, you mentioned that nothing was done to tackle it. What do you want done? I want the government to follow Scotland and make it an offence to abuse shop workers. That's a start. I want more police on the ground because there's hardly any police on the ground. I don't blame the police. They're just busy. But because they don't see it as a crime, they just give us a crime reference number and that is it. They, they hardly come out and see us. I mean, if I was abused in the street, I would get the police come round, take a statement and sort some out for me. But because I happen to wear a badge with a company name on it, they're not interested and I don't understand the difference. And I think that's why I get upset and, you know, frustrated and come home and I do cry because it's not fair. I'm just doing my job that I used to really, really enjoy. Mm. But it's getting too much now. So it has been that cumulative effect of each day building up. It is, yeah. Yeah, it is, yeah. I mean... I don't know how much more um, some of us can take, really. I really don't. And that is interesting that it has been a law put in in Scotland uh, to the effect that it would be a standalone offence. And that's what you're looking for in England and Wales. We did get a statement from the Home Office. They said the policing minister has been clear that police must take a zero tolerance approach to shoplifting. Violence against retail workers is unacceptable. That's why we made it an aggravating offence to ensure tougher sentences for perpetrators. We continue to work closely with retailers. The police have committed to patrol more area areas where there's shoplifting. They say good progress has been made on these commitments, but I have a feeling you won't agree with that. Definitely not. No. Oh, no. Um, sometimes you'll see a copper, but <laughs> very rare. I think we saw one last week because they actually caught one of the guys stealing from another shop and he got co-op products and we're the only co-op in the area. So he actually brought them back to us. Do you think you'll stay in the business? Um, I honestly don't know, to be honest with you. Um, Something's got to change um, and that's why I bang the drums about our campaign, Freedom From Fear, um, for us, Door, because I want it to change. I love my job. And it would be a shame that these individuals um, have caused me to have a career change that I'm not looking for, to be honest with you. Michelle Whitehead, a workplace rep for the Shop Workers Union, speaking to Nula. Now, last week saw the end of a very powerful TV series that looked into something we've heard a lot about on Woman's Hour over the last couple of years, Police Misconduct. Four years ago, Avon and Somerset Police offered Channel 4 unprecedented access to its counter-corruption unit, the unit that polices the police. The result is a devastating three-part documentary series called To Catch a Copper, where cameras follow cases from the point of view of investigators, accused officers, victims, legal professionals and community leaders. The chief constable of Avon and Somerset Police, who made the decision to let the cameras in, is also the first female Chief Constable, Sarah Crew. She joined Emma, who asked if she had doubts about letting the cameras in in the first place. No, I, I don't regret that at all. Um, policing is done by consent in this country, and that involves the police and the public in an open relationship. We have some um, really 
strong, even coercive powers, and certainly lots of authority as police officers. Um, and I think transparency and accountability go with those powers. Um, and so, no, I never regret um, opening the doors um, for the public to come in and look and see. The first scene in the first episode, officers are, are trying to handle a woman who's threatening to take her own life. Very quickly, she's restrained uh, physically. She's then fitted with a spit hood after trying and failing, it seems, to, to spit at one of the officers. And then within that very sharp, small confines of a spit hood, I'd, I'd never actually seen one up close before, mm-hmm. she's uh, pepper sprayed in response to, to kicking out. And, you know, the, the strength of that pepper spray is such that one of the officers says, we need to get a van because I can't now drive that car. Mm-hmm. But that's up in her face within a spit hood. What is your response to that? It's really shocking, isn't it? You know, ashamed, angry, disappointed, all of those things. When we invited documentary makers in, um, you know, we we opened our doors and we expected them to find misconduct. But frankly, as a, I didn't expect them to find that, but they did. Um, and those are my reactions to, to what I saw. It's female police officers, isn't it, in this case? Yeah. Uh, de- dealing with a, a woman, a member of the public mm-hmm. who... Uh, when your other officers trying to police the police look at this expected, not because they were women, I should hasten to add, but because of the woman's situation, they expected some care uh, and a difference of treatment. Is it more disappointing because it's women? Um, I think it's disappointing. Um, it's, it, for some reason, it feels more shocking. However, it's, you know, it, it, it's um, indefensible from anyone, to yes. be fair. And I think that's the reaction of every... Um, and the vast majority of police officers, police staff who work in policing up and down the country, that that is a very shocking, disturbing scene. It's shocking and disturbing as well that there are two people there and one's not able to check the other. Um, you know, I, I always think that the, the superpowers that police officers need to have are compassion and empathy and patience and as well as courage and all those other things that we expect of policing. But they were sadly lacking in that interaction. I, I, I mean, the series starts with that, but I also start there because a lot of the narrative at the moment, if we're talking about how to trust the police, is in light of male police officers abusing their positions a lot of the time. It has been, and especially when it comes to relationships with members of the public who are women. So, it, it you know, and we should also say the women also joke to each other about getting a tandoori at this point. It's an incredibly distressing situation going on and, and, and are talking to each other during this themselves. Um and, and having all sorts of jokes that, again, perhaps we've been hearing more about men doing that sort of thing. It then does move to an even another level of shocking when we hear a, a call come in from a woman, a member of the public, who's quite confused as to whether she should be complaining or not, but remembers being drunk, picked up by uh, a police car who in some ways seems to have been offering to take her home after a drunk night out, and she'd been drunk and, I think, disorderly within a nightclub. And they end up having sex. And she doesn't know if that's wrong or not. The police officer's named. It is a crime to do that, as I understand Mm -hmm. it. What was your reaction to that one? Well, so uh, my reaction was um, immediately through the call handler who took that call was was very good and said, no, this is not all right. Um, A police response then took place. Our counter-corruption unit are featured throughout that story, working really, really hard to investigate that case and actually bring bring it before a courtroom. And they did. Um, and actually that case went to trial on two occasions because on the first occasion, um, the jury were unable to reach a verdict. And you know that the criminal justice 
system did its work and in that case the officer wasn't found guilty then there was um you know as an organization that same unit pursued the misconduct process mm. and again that did come to a conclusion um but it came to a conclusion that there was no case to answer for gross misconduct so you know th- this documentary was about showing that system you know what what i saw was a recognition that this felt wrong and a very robust response and investigation which you know exploited both the criminal justice system and the police misconduct regime there's a clip of of something that you have to say that we wanted to play this mm-hmm. morning let's just have a listen you know i can think of friends that i have outside of policing you know women who haven't ever had any need to have any lack of confidence in the police who would who said to me Sarah, if I was driving my car and it's in a country lane and a police car came up behind me and it put the blue lights on it, requested me to stop, I wouldn't stop. If 50% of the population are beginning to feel that way, then we've got a problem. Is that how you feel? Um, No, because my experience is that most of the the police officers I've worked with and a lot of the men, I don't fear. I, I think I'm safe. Um, and, do, and still, I would... do you still think that, though, after what you've seen? Like you've seen more in this, I imagine, than you had seen, as you say, in your working mm-hmm. life day to day. Mm-hmm. And your friends mm-hmm. saying that to you must be very sobering. It's it's incredibly sobering. So while that's my, not my experience, I I completely accept it from my friends' experience, and I can completely empathise and understand. It's shocking. It's a moment actually that calls me to pause and stop and really think hard. What do we need to do to drive back public confidence? Um, this documentary is part of that because I, I think it's important. Don't you think it's going to do the op- Don't you think it's going to do the opposite? You know, I, I was watching it. I have to say, it's not the type of thing I would choose to watch of an evening. I watched it to to make sure I was informed ahead of our conversation. Of course, I felt even worse. I think in the short term, but the, all of those incidents that are featured, they happened. Yeah, all of those other incidents that we hear about up and down the country they happen and aside from this documentary um you know that that feeling of that friend of mine but also the figures that look at public confidence particularly among women um confidence is falling um and it's falling drastically aside from putting it on a documentary so we need to do something drastic to improve it and i think being honest and open and confronting the reality both with the public, but also with um, within within policing, within the good policing that we see, I think it's incredibly important on that journey. I don't think unless you accept that you have a problem, can you truly come back from that problem? You know, four or five years ago, you talked about me being the national lead for rape and sexual offences, for adult sexual offences. We had another documentary where we invited documentary makers in mm. to see how we were investigating another issue which is incredibly important to confidence of women and that's sexual abuse um and it presented a picture of us that you know wasn't how we wanted to seem but it made us sit up and look and change the way we were operating and it also actually brought in lots of support from women and from women's groups up and down the country including academics who stepped forward towards us to say you accept and acknowledge that there's room for improvement well we're stepping towards you to help you improve and that's what's happened um and and you know some of our work here in Avon and Somerset is now being rolled out nationally called Operation Soteria and I think back to I think you have to acknowledge the challenges 
as well as the great work that goes on in policing before you can step forward, um, especially with communities, to make a change. So but in I the suppose, short term... I suppose yeah. just if I might, you know, looking at some of the reports that have been done, the the um, the view of uh, certainly within the Metropolitan Police that there's institutionalised misogyny, sexism, racism, if you looked at Dame Louise Casey's report, but also what's been said about other forces with those same issues, that there's a knowledge of it and it's not just a film like this there's been reports there's been other things that's been done but it is not translating yet into a change in public confidence nor does it seem to be translating in a change of culture that's the issue the lack of evidence around that what would you say to that that's precisely why i think that it's very important to be transparent and to acknowledge those problems you know but it's not working. It's not working having this ca- this particular counter co- uh, corruption unit in the sense of you could say it was working because of then what mm-hmm. happens. But it's not mm-hmm. enough of a deterrent to stop a police officer picking up a drunk woman and having sex with her in his car. Well, then the system needs to be improved to change that. In the in the it's documentary- not about the system though, is it? How do you? I'm not holding you accountable for him. Yeah, but how yeah. do you make it that you don't think that that is acceptable on any level to do? Because it's already a crime. That's what that individual knows, or they should know, certainly as a police officer. And they already know they will be investigated by the systems that you have. And it still happened. Absolutely, it has. And that's why the system needs to change. But also, as you say, I'm not accountable for the whole system. But I can throw a light on that whole system. And we're having this debate now about the system and how it might need to change to... um, inspire greater confidence and deliver the right outcomes that will generate that confidence. How how do you you think you could get your friends then over to a place where if there's a police car behind them, they aren't scared and they feel okay about pulling over? How do you think you'll be able to do that and how long do you think it might take? Well, I'll be very clear. I will make sure as Chief Constable that I do everything within my power to ensure that people who have ill intent don't enter policing, but also to create a culture within policing where every individual offers that challenge. When they see behaviour which isn't in line with our ethics or our values, they step up. It's It's not widely known that most of the misconduct um, that we see coming through is actually raised by colleagues and there are outcomes which hopefully will start to drive some of that confidence but I think we've got to be great at policing as well and in some areas we're not great at policing. Chief Constable of Avon and Somerset Police Sarah Crew speaking to Emma and that documentary To Catch a Copper is available on the Channel 4 streaming service. Now, you might remember, almost a year ago, time flies, Women's Hour announced The Power List, our collection of incredible women in the world of sport. Well, this week, Nula was joined by two-time gold medal Paralympic rower Lauren Rowles, who featured on that power list. She's building up to what she hopes will be a record-breaking Paris Paralympics later this year. Lauren is also a strong advocate for LGBTQ plus representation in sport and has spoken very movingly about her struggle with mental health. She started by telling Nula how it felt to be on the power list. Oh, overwhelmed in one sense. I I think to myself some days, you know, when moments like that happen, that I'm just Lauren trying to live my life. And (laughs) you don't really think that what you you do and being uh, a sports person, I guess, in some senses is that powerful. But then the flip side of that is the the impact that we do have as people and especially as women in sport and as a queer person in sport myself the impact that we have about influencing those around us and certainly for me 
my motivation to impact the younger generation. And so for me, it was a real honour to feature on the list with some some absolute heroes of mine and um, women who are absolutely making impact in our world. Well, I've always enjoyed speaking to all the women on our power list and your story uh, is quite something as well. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how you got into rowing? Yeah, I reflect on my, my start of my journey in rowing is a very funny one because uh, I grew up uh, in Birmingham and in Birmingham you don't really do rowing. It's not really a common sport um, in the Midlands uh, per se. And when I grew up, I never had any idea really what rowing was. And really how I landed in my spot in, in, in a seat in a boat was that I got offered an opportunity. I was talent scouted by the British rowing team in early 2015. And but, I, but can we stop there for a second just where you got scouted yeah i got scouted at stoke mandeville hospital which was is a spinal center there and until you're 18 you have to go back there every single year um to receive sort of a a check-in see how you're doing how you're coping to life in a chair and um I had become disabled when I was 13 and I had a spinal injury. And so until I was 18, I just kept going uh, to Stoke Mandeville. And in the one week that I was there in 2015, uh, my sports therapist said to me, the British rowing team are coming down and they want to find some talent and get people on indoor rowers. And at the time I was involved in wheelchair racing, I was 16. I'd just come back from the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow and lived my absolute dream there. And I just really didn't see myself moving away from the sport. And then, but I was taking a bit of a break. I had an injury at the time. And so when my sports therapist at St. Mandeville said to me, you know, you should come down and try rowing out. I wasn't really convinced, if I'm honest with you. I'd never done rowing before, never been on an indoor rower. But I am massively competitive, obviously. <laughs> and I remember she, she pulled me down from the ward and she said, please come down. She dragged me down there and I got on this indoor rower. And there was, there was no joke, this old guy that was sat next to me. And I just took one look at him and thought, I'm going to beat you today. <laughs> and that's where the journey started, really. And um, not long after that, I convinced my mum to drive me down to Reading from Birmingham, the 100 mile trip and get in a boat for the very first time. And that's how it began, really. But how did that feel the first time you went to row on the water? Oh, it feels um, like the, the moment that I got in a boat for the very first time, I still remember vividly to this day because I remember how it made me feel. I think at the time of my life, just to give a bit of context, you know, I was a bit of a troubled teenager. I'd become disabled overnight literally um, when I was 13 and I had to become accustomed to living life with a disability and I think I never really spoke to a therapist though I was deeply encouraged to and sort of went to my obligatory appointments but didn't really say anything because I think when you're a teenager you don't really think that anything or when you're a young person especially you don't think that anything bad is permanent and I always thought one day you know my life would get better and that living with a disability wouldn't wouldn't be permanent it wouldn't be forever and then I think when I got into my later teenage years and I realized just how permanent my condition was I think for me I just really closed myself into a box and and went into my shell and sport for me was my therapy it was my way of I guess battling the demons and when I sort of got in a boat for the very first time the, the most powerful moment for me was really pushing off from that side being out on the water and not being in my wheelchair and that for me was a really powerful moment in my life of just being free from the disability for the very first time since I had it and 
I, I was addicted to it ever since then. And that and the fact that it's really, really hard, which I love the element of something being so difficult. And I just wanted to be good at it. And so I wanted to master the skill of it. It's way harder than it looks. All I'll say that is that people get in boats and think they can just pull on the handles. <laughs> it's absolutely not like that. There's such an element of skill. And that and the fact that I was going to work in a team full of amazing people as well that were teaching me not only about how to be an incredible athlete, but disabled people around me that live normal lives. And I hadn't really seen that as a, as a young person growing up with a disability. I didn't realize that you could have kids and a loving relationship and a job and you could drive a car. And I was learning all these things about having life with a disability that they showed me. Yeah, I mean, it was. I was watching on your website. It was overnight, just to let our listeners know you were 13 years of age fine one day and not the next and I will tell them to go to your website and take a look uh, also just at that time when you were 13 and so obviously it's going to take a lot of time to process Um, and I want to get on to some of the home life as well. I just want to throw out to our listeners though as I speak to you because you're on a screen in front of me uh, you have short hair you didn't always have short hair tell me that story before I get to Paris. Ah the story of the mullet which is what I'm currently rocking now. Looks it good. needs fresh trim at the minute. But <laughs> um, for me, I grew up with long hair always. In any any photo you'll see of me when I was young, I had a bob once. I donated to the Little Princesses Trust. And that was as short as I ever went was a bob. Uh, but I always wanted to cut my hair short. I always had this urge as a young girl. I grew up loving football, always in football kit. Was a bit of a tomboy, as they say now. And... I just lived to do sport, really. And I didn't really feel that feminine. Um, but I knew I was a girl and I knew I was a woman then later when I grew up. And I never, I always identified as that. And it's not, not like I ever wanted to be a boy, but I always felt like I was different. And I wanted to make different choices in how I dressed and how I looked and how I wanted to have my hair to what the other girls at my school did. And then when I sort of was in school, I, I was bullied for being a little bit different. I was bullied for being the girl that did sport and was so into sport and wore football kit and hung out with the boys. And I think that's where I started to realise that I was different um, to other girls. And for me, I think that progressed into then because I was so heavily bullied. I then chose to make this decision to conform then. Mm. I wanted to have friends and be popular like every young person does. And so I decided to conform. I pierced my ears. I started wearing makeup. I started wearing more feminine clothing and conforming to what a woman or a young girl should look like in inverted commas. And that for me then... I sort of then stripped back who Lauren really was. And through my teenage years, it got to the point where I suffered so badly with anxiety and my lack of self-esteem that I would never go out the house without having makeup on. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I hated wearing makeup. Right. I hated how it made me look. But at the same time, I felt like people would judge me if I didn't. I had my hair consistently long. I started wearing it only down. Um, I started wearing more, um, you know, feminine revealing clothing. Um, and I think that for me, it just didn't feel like me. So, so when like you long. chopped it? So when I chopped it all off, I did that a couple of years ago. And in a point, probably like some people, when they go through um, a bit of mental health crisis, maybe do something a little bit drastic. Um, I was going through a really difficult point in my life and um, I came out a few years ago. And uh, as part of that, that journey, you learn who you are and you start to get to express that. And that's the beauty of queer joy. And I decided a couple of years ago when I was going through a bit of a rough patch, why not? Like, why not now do something that makes me feel good about myself, makes me look in the mirror and go, you look amazing today, Lauren. So I cut my hair off and 
at the time, you know, I'd said to people for ages that I wanted to do it and they said, don't do it. You know, that's, you know, you're going to look like a boy. And I just thought, what utter nonsense is this that still in 2022, <laughs> we're still conforming to this idea of what men and women should look like. And I'm a bit of a defiant person i'll say that and i just decided you know what i'm gonna cut it off well it and looks so I did it. it looks great and there's lots of people uh, that are getting in touch with their stories inspired by yours but i want to also look ahead while i have you to the paris games this summer you've got a pretty clear goal in mind a record-breaking goal what is it my goal is this year as i embark on my third paralympic game selection hopefully and um, to make the gb team is to win my third ever paralympic gold medal consecutively and that's never been done in the history of para rowing is for an athlete to win three back-to-back gold medals so to say that i'm doing something for the history books is an understatement and to have my name to that would be just my life's mission in in sport as personally as an athlete and to go out there and prove that you can be different in a sport that is a bit more traditional and you can and uh, be yourself authentically and that brings the best version of yourself to to what you do and I, I really want to just promote that in what I do now The inspiring Lauren Rowell speaking to Nula there and don't forget the full Women's Hour Power List and a chance to watch the live reveal show is all on our website and we asked you about your hairstyle changing stories here are just a couple of your messages an anonymous message says I changed my hairstyle when I retired last July. I'm 66 and I'm thoroughly enjoying retirement, seeing friends, volunteering and seeing more of my family. I decided to cut my hair and to have a more dramatic style, which made me feel more me and not like a retired person. I've had lots of compliments. Bet you look great. And a brilliant email from Susie who says, During my childhood, my mother wore her hair plaited and fixed on her head. One day... I returned from school to find my aunt having tea with a strange lady. I asked where my mother was. The strange lady was my mother. On a whim, she'd had her long hair cut off and was now a platinum blonde. My father came home and did exactly what I'd done. He didn't recognise his wife. The news spread that he had a new woman and it was some time before the truth was revealed. Oh, there's nothing like the power of a new haircut is there for feeling refreshed. That's all from me today. Emma is back on Monday at the usual time of 10am. She'll be speaking to the actor Ashling B about her new series, Alice and Jack, and a wellness influencer who takes her inspiration from Aristotle. Until then, have a great rest of your weekend. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts.